Our scripture this morning is from Psalm 46, verses 8 through 11. Come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. There are many different kinds of silence. There's serene silence, like the first snowfall of the year. Maybe you go out early in the morning before footprints have even tarnished the ground. There's angry silence. Every married couple has experienced this, maybe over something silly like doing the dishes wrong or your spouse not putting the toilet paper roll on the right way for the 80,000th time, right? There's awkward silence, like when the pastor doesn't quite land the joke the way that he meant to. There's mischievous sil silence, when all of a sudden your kids stop making noise and you know that something is up. Comfortable silence, like a car ride where no one speaks because you're just enjoying time with one another. Terrible silence. The aftermath of a disaster when you're still trying to make sense of what just happened. Awestruck silence. Like in Psalm 46, where the world is stunned into reverence by God's mighty acts. For all of its lack of content, silence can actually say quite a bit. Right? 400 years, that's the amount of time that passes between the Old Testament and the New Testament in a sort of silence. Uh, between Malachi and Matthew, God was not inactive during this period of time, and there were all sorts of things that did happen as God's people sought to live faithfully under various occupations of the land, but centuries passed without them hearing direct revelation through prophets in the same way that they had before. What was heard through that silence? What might they have anticipated hearing? Right? We are in this season of Advent now, leading up to Christmas, which is the breaking of that silence. Which may make it all the more strange that when you open up to Matthew, the very first book of our New Testament, the opening verses are just a list of names. After all of that waiting and waiting and waiting, we get this list of names. Some familiar, many not. Quite a few that are difficult to pronounce. Um, many people's eyes glaze over when you get to parts of the Bible like that. But this list is actually incredibly important. It symbolizes not just Jesus' family line, but God's work of salvation through the ages, beginning with the promise to the family of Abraham and culminating in the fulfillment of that promise through Jesus, the blessing of salvation for all nations. So I want to spend some time reflecting on that list this morning. We won't read it all together. Uh, it's the reason, actually, I had us do that little kind of fun song at the beginning, so we could get the, the content of the genealogy in a way that could make us laugh a little bit, too, as we went. But... Um, but I do want to point out some highlights from this text for us. We start with Abraham through Jacob and his 12 sons. This is the family story that comprises the majority of the book of Genesis. You know, God chose Abraham to bless, to make him into a nation, said he would eventually bless 
all nations, up through Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. We read some of these stories in uh, our study in Genesis this last uh, several months. Uh, you may remember the exceptionally stor disturbing story of Judah and, and Tamar uh, that came from that series. Tamar was originally Judah's daughter-in-law after two of his sons died. While married to her, Judah had sent her away rather than caring for her. Later, he ends up um, sleeping with her and then mistakes her for a lady of the night on the side of the road. She gets pregnant. When Judah hears through the grapevine, he's then livid. Obviously, she needs to be punished for this. And then evidence comes to light that he is the father, leading to his final acknowledgement that she is more righteous than I. After that uh, sermon, I had some further conversations with people and realized I didn't do Tamar justice in that, that message either. I had referred to her in the message as a pious prostitute in that, using the situation to her advantage, but I was wrong. Judah actually mistook her identity. Uh, she never accepted any payment in that. She was the only one being faithful in the midst of a really difficult situation, faithful to covenant law and to produce an heir for her late husband. Uh, Tamar is the first of four women mentioned in this genealogy, in these first six verses. We get, uh, we get Tamar, we also get Rahab, the Canaanite in Jericho who helps the Israelite spies. We get Ruth, a Moabite, the only foreign woman to have a biblical book named after her. Uh, we get Bathsheba, mentioned here only as the wife of Uriah. Uriah was a Hittite also one of the mighty men um, who were, was recruited into David's army. Unfortunately, in a very low moment of David's life, he betrays Uriah by sleeping with his wife. And then when she gets pregnant, instead of owning up to his mistake, he gets Uriah put onto the front lines so that he will be killed. Not a stellar moment for David, right? Uh, honestly, it's interesting that Matthew would highlight this. But I, I want us to reflect on these four women, because it's actually really important that they are included here. It's unconventional for Matthew to have mentioned women at all in his genealogy. That just wasn't the typical practice. And you would have thought if any woman was going to be mentioned in this, it might have been someone like Sarah or Rebecca or even Leah, uh, Judah's mom. Instead, we get mentions of these women with some fairly scandalous stories. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba all have some sort of scandal involved in their lives. And all of them are outsiders. We mentioned Bathsheba could have been an Israelite. We actually don't know her background. We do know that she was married to a non-Israelite, um, to, to Uriah the Hittite. And all of them, though, despite the scandal surrounding them, their circumstances, they all show themselves to be pious and to be faithful even in the midst of all of that. That's significant. But I think that Matthew is uh, careful to highlight these women for two reasons. One, I think he wants to reinforce that even while Mary is caught up in some scandal of her own, uh, her pregnancy is uh, a little bit like people are, you don't just get pregnant without something happening, right? Uh, but that it's completely consistent for God to work within situations in which some people might raise their eyebrows at it. So there's, there's some defense of Mary in here, I believe. But also, there's the reason that this Messiah is shown to be born not just to the Jews, but also uh, for everyone. That Jesus, this Messiah, is Lord of all 
That's where it's particularly important for us non-Jewish readers as well, particularly encouraging also for anyone who has ever felt left out or unworthy. That all of these individuals in this genealogy, great, scandalous, known outsiders, insiders who are barely known at all, they are all part of this family tree of our wonderful Savior. And if the Lord emerged from uh, such a family, what would make us think that he wouldn't welcome us into it as well? Jesus is the Lord of all, including both the outsiders and the marginalized and insiders who were both good and bad. The second section of Jesus' genealogy here starts with David and goes through some of the kings in David's family line. David, if you didn't know, is a pretty big deal. Uh, he's the second king of Israel, but by far the most well-known. He, although he's far from perfect, he was talked about as a man after God's heart. He loved God passionately. He authored much of the book of Psalms. Um, within the covenants that had already been made with Israel, God also made a special covenant with David that he will bless his descendants and that from his line will be established an everlasting throne. That is important because, as we see after that, his family line kind of goes on a roller coaster ride of both good and bad kings. It's a, it's a mixed bag after that. So we have uh, uh, David is the father of Solomon. As we mentioned, that's not a stellar moment for him, but it's an important one because Solomon uh, becomes one, known as one of the wisest kings in Israel's history, generally looked on favorably, but also he was a bit harsh, maybe a tad dramatic, kind of like his dad, uh, and definitely gets his weakness for lust from his dad as well. And then all of those that follow after this kind of go on up and down, uh, good and bad to varying degrees. There are even some kings who are also missing from this list. Uh, Matthew has organized his genealogy into three sections of uh, 14 uh, generations. And this is not a mistake that he leaves some names out of the genealogy. It was actually somewhat common to leave names out like that, especially if, uh, one, if the record was well attested. And so uh, there wasn't any doubt that from, you know, uh, this person to their great-grandson, we all knew, knew that part of the story, that if you're trying to make a point creatively in something, or just trying to condense so it's easier to memorize, that you might skip some of those names. But his organization into three sections of 14 is actually um, intentional. He is trying to do something special here. Um, Jews in the first century especially loved working with numerology in the Hebrew, and each letter of the Hebrew alphabet would correspond to a number. And so when you add up the letters in David's name, guess what number you get? 14. And so 14 is this special number uh, throughout the genealogy. He wanted to really drive home that Jesus was this Messiah descended from David's line. So he made sure to highlight this number just to drive home this point, that he is the king of kings. But to get even deeper with the numbers here in the numerology, some commentators have pointed out Three sections of 14 can also be broken into six sections of seven. And seven is an even more important number uh, in the Bible. It's symbolic of uh, creation. Right? And so the suggestion has been that after these six groups of seven, that Jesus then, then shows up as the fulfillment of all of our hopes, um, that has come, everything that has come before. Where these other kings have failed, there would come one who would finally be worthy of the throne, the king of kings. 
but then the exile threw all of that into a tailspin. Jerusalem was captured. The king was deposed. A puppet ruler for Babylon was installed. The temple was destroyed, and everyone with any skill or education was hauled off to Babylon, exiled in a foreign, foreign land. So Zerubbabel had held some promise in the exile. He governed Judah as the Persian province, and he led a return to Jerusalem allowed by Cyrus. There was some kind of hope at that time that something significant was happening with Zerubbabel, if I can say the name. Goodness. But he apparently ran into some sort of difficulty, was later replaced as governor by Nehemiah, who was a Jewish man who had served as cupbearer to Persian king Artaxerxes. After this, David's line kind of falls into relative obscurity. There's no longer a monarchy. There's only a flicker of messianic hope that someday someone from this line will fulfill the promise. This is the period of silence, a long waiting, plenty of activity as God's people seek to live faithfully under multiple occupying empires, but no Messiah. The following names that we get from the exile uh, to Joseph are known only to us from Matthew and from this genealogy. Nowhere else in the Old Testament or other Jewish literature that we have today is it corroborated. That's not cause for us to doubt in this authenticity because genealogies were incredibly important to the Jewish people. It's highly likely that uh, both families and religious leaders would have been preserving these records and keeping track of these things. And yet I wonder what they did with that information. You think about the folks who could have been candidates for Messiah, who could have been in David's line. Were there descendants of David who harbored sorts of dreams or illusions that they might be the savior that everyone hoped for? Well, yeah, there were at least a few who did claim to be. Were there candidates for the job that wanted nothing more than just to lead a quiet life, the hope that no one connected the dots and, and wanted them to stand up and take the role? Probably there was a few of those. But we don't know anything about the names on this list. All we have is their names. Reflecting on these names this last week, it got me thinking about my own family line. I know some people get very into genealogy and, and trace their, can trace their family way back. I'm sure that you guys have tons of, of records on your family line, right, Davis's. Uh, I actually know very little about my family on either side. I know some names, a few stories here and there, our family just doesn't share much about stories of, uh, of folks on either side. You know, sometimes with our families, we wish we knew more about our families. Sometimes we wish we didn't know the things that we do, right? <laughs> Both of those can be a bit discouraging. But in that space, Jesus' family line, his genealogy, is a bit of an encouragement to me. It reminds me that God's hope lasts longer than ours. I wonder if for this last portion of Jesus' family tree, if Matthew isn't just interested in linking Jesus to all these famous figures before him, but perhaps he also wants us to feel the weight of that silent period. To reflect on the fact that this salvation has been years, centuries, a millennia in the making, even when hope falls into obscurity. Even when we're unsure, uncertain, What's going to happen? The hope of Jesus, it rings the loudest in the silence of waiting hearts. 
This is one of the reasons that this season of Advent is so important. Beyond the excitement and commercialization of the Christmas season is the remembrance that God does fulfill his promises. That even when it, when it feels like our last hope died out years ago, God says, I'm not yet done. I will still yet be faithful, and I will not forget my promises. In Israel's long wait, we're reminded that the hope of God's salvation in our lives is far more enduring than we can imagine. No matter how hopeless you might feel your situation is, no matter how long it's been, the Lord can still bring restoration. So as we begin this Advent season, I'd like to suggest that the best way we can prepare ourselves to remember and to understand Jesus' birth is to pause and to reflect on all that has come before. As we remember the salvation story throughout Scripture, as we remember what God has done in our own lives in history. To remember that silence and waiting is where hope speaks loudest. So Psalm 46.10, it reminds us of the wisdom of stillness, to be still and know that I am God. God speaks that in the psalm into moments of stunned reverence after his mighty acts. But God also beckons us to that same knowledge in our anger, in our fear, in our comfort, in our busyness, in our every moment. He speaks it to the marginalized and exploited, those who are waiting and listening for any sign of hope. He speaks it to kings who have authority, who wield their power both with patient reverence, the good ones, or a lack of that, the bad ones. To the humbled, the exiled, who are uncertain of what, of what the moment even requires. Can we be still and know while there are wars and chaos that yet rage on around us? Can we be still and know when our lives feel no sense of urgency or pressure for ourselves in the moment? In the mounting busyness of this holiday season, let us not miss what God has been preparing for us in each day. Let's be still and know that he is God. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for your salvation story that rings throughout time. A family with a promise of blessing, a people saved by God's mighty hand, a nation marked out for faithfulness, a kingly line with an everlasting promise imperiled by leaders who turned away, a hope silenced in years of dismay, but then bursting forth the glorious Jesus, our Messiah. Jesus, the hope of nations who has captured our hearts and given us new life. May we remember that gift and hope, Lord. Will you draw us into stillness? Will you draw us into expectancy, into hope? Help us feel our need for you. Pray that. In your name. Amen.